I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APF. If you're a drinker in the U.S., you're probably pretty into grapes and grains. You know, wine and beer, whiskey, bourbon, gin. But why don't we drink more cider? After all, cider was really the drink of the original 13 colonies, and apple farming exists pretty much at all because of a hundreds of year olds' thirst for cider. And that's nothing compared to the ancient traditions of agave spirits. You know, tequila, mezcal, and their cousins. The traditional artistry of Mexican mezcaleros. You could say that apples and agave should be the heart of drinking in North America. And they have deep, fascinating histories. To learn more about these things, we have today restaurateur and agave evangelist David Suro Pineda and ethnobotanist Gary Paul Nabham, authors of Agave Spirits, the past present, and future of mezcals. And first, we have my old friend, Diane Flint. I first met Diane through the Southern Foodways Alliance, and we eventually served on their board of advisors together. I remember her leading those meetings, and she's just such an exquisitely thoughtful leader, and you know, she, would, she has this incredible talent for asking in this very calm way questions that just make you clarify your own thoughts. Well, the irony is that in her career, she's also made cider so award-winning and delicious that its fans, well, let's just say that their enjoyment of her cider was not known to leave people as sharp as when they started. But when Diane told me that she was taking her expertise in apples and turning it into a book on the history and diversity of the nearly extinct apples of the South, I was immediately fascinated. That book is called Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived. The surprising story of apples in the South. And Diane, it is so great to see you. It's wonderful to be with you, Francis. It's great to hear your voice. The same, the same. And congratulations on the book. It is really wonderful. It's so multifaceted. I love reading it. And, you know, you know more about apples than probably anyone I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> You've dedicated so much of your career and your life to apples and I've never told you this before but I'm just like kind of okay with apples (laughs) (laughs) I can change that Um, I can change that (laughs) I believe it I believe it the way you talk about them the way you write about them is making me a convert so for anyone else out there who is not already uh, a total apple lover what do you love about them what makes apples so magical and fascinating to you Well, so many things. But first of all, they are the perfect vehicle for conveying flavor. You know, apples are tart and sweet, Hmm. but they're primarily sweet. And as we bite into a ripe apple, those cell walls burst. And that's, you know, most people like a crisp apple. And that's what happens. Those cell Mm -hmm, walls mm -hmm. burst in the flesh of the apple, and the juice explodes into our mouth. And the juice is full of proteins mm. and, and enzymes and, and acid and sugar and lots of complex flavor. And at the same time, you know, an apple is also full of air. That's why you can bob for apples. They're 25% air. You can bob for apples you know, in, the, in the fall at the, on the side <laughs> of the road at the apple festival. Yeah, they float in the water. They yeah. float in the water. Um, so when you bite into them, it's like biting into compressed air. And at the same time you get that juice, you also get an explosion of esters, fruity esters that go to the back of your mouth, 
where you sense aroma. So we get this big mm-hmm. package of flavor in every bite of an apple. And oh, it's just a perfectly engineered way for mammals to, <laughs> to, 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 to attack sweetness. And, and we have for thousands of years. That's so interesting. You're the lone holdout. (laughs) (laughs) When I was like, if there's anyone else, no, there's no one else out there. I'm the only one who's not. (laughs) Well, there's there's another thing that I think is fascinating about apples that really connected me to the fruit. um, And that's Mm. the the connection of people and and apples. You know, apples Mm. reproduce sexually like humans do. So each seed is the combination of the DNA of two parents. So every seed okay. inside an apple, those little carpels, those little hard things inside an apple sure. usually contain about two seeds and they're, you know, five or six carpels. So every one of those every one of those seeds makes a brand new apple. Um, but to and that's reproduction, but to replicate an apple to make another Gala apple or to make another Albemarle Pippin or Parmar apple like I've got in my hand right now, a human being Mm. has to graft that apple from the tissue of the mother tree. And humans have known how to graft for 2,000 years. And what that means is that every apple with a name has a human desire behind it. Hmm. Oh, I love the way you put that. A human desire, meaning... If you just let an apple fall from the tree and that seed goes into the ground, it's what comes up is a different kind of apple. Mm-hmm. So the human desire means, oh, no, I like the apple, the fruit from this tree. I don't want to see what its offspring are going to be like and what ways they'll be different, unlike yeah. humans and their children. Although maybe some of us just want our children to be clones of ourselves and have trouble letting go and all that stuff. But <laughs> So if you actually want another tree that bears the fruit that you just enjoyed... There had to be human intervention. Yes, that's right. And someone so the, make that choice. So the, the flavor vehicle of the apple itself caused humans to eat, to seek that fruit for sugar and, and mammals as well. But when humans decided they want a particular apple, not just an apple, but a particular apple, that's when grafting mm-hmm. came in. And that's when we see, you know, such interesting and complex history behind apples and apples that you know, that history reflects a region and a culture and as well as individuals. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, so let's talk about region and culture because that's a big part of your book. Your book is in some ways a personal story, but in, in many ways is a history of Southern apples. And, you know, when we think of apples, we think of Washington State, uh, which I just read, produces almost two-thirds of all the apples in the entire country, you know, on its own. Uh, Michigan and New York come... Uh, in second place, but a distance tied for second place. Most people don't think of the South, which is where you're from and, and where you have grown apples for many years. But you write that Southern apples have been around for a long time and were super important. So what happened? Well, Southerners loved their apples and used them for many things. Today we eat fresh apples, um, over 60% of the apples we eat are a snack. But Southerners had all kinds mm-hmm. of uses for them. Um, they were apples, there were specific apples that people chose to replicate just for drying. You know, I grow an apple called the horse apple, mm-hmm. and it's very dense and the flesh uh, dries easily. There were apples that fell apart 
um, you know, to make applesauce and apple butter, high sugar apples like this Parmar and Hughes crab apple that were for brandy and, and cider. And then they were seasonal. You know, in the South, apples were 12 month fruit. We have mm. apples we harvest in late May and early June, you know, Carolina June, July sweeting. Winter, John, you know, the names tell you uh, the seasons. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. those late winter apples will keep in a, in a root cellar or in a hearth pit or piled under a pile of straw in the middle of a pasture. Those are all the ways that Southerners used to keep apples fresh over the winter. Those, some of those apples mm-hmm. kept till March and April, and that's a 12-month apple. And what happened to apples, you know, fundamentally – is we lost those uses. You know, people moved off the farm. Mm. They they didn't dry apples anymore. They didn't you know put up. They didn't can apples. That life changed. Um, there was off farm migration. People went to work in cities, and also agriculture became a business. So it was not mm. the business of sustaining a farm. It was the business of selling a commodity. And that meant mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. farmers had to consider land use and what is the most profitable way I can use this land. So apples became segregated to the part of the South where they could most profitably be grown and other things couldn't profitably be grown like cotton or corn or tobacco. Mm-hmm. And that was the Mountain South. And that's the short answer of how in just the span of about 50 years, Francis, from the late 1800s to the early 1900s, the South lost hundreds and hundreds of the nearly 2,000 apple varieties that were originated or widely grown in the South. Wow. And actually, including the very first apples in, yes. you know, what would be our country, right? Like even when we were colony. Well, obviously the indigenous people were here, um, but apples were not native to this land. That's right. Malus domestica, which is what we think of as the apple, the apple you get in the grocery store, the apple that grows in orchards today, that apple is not native to North America. It probably came to North America. Um, well, the, it was certainly planted in an organized orchard, and the first apples planted in an organized orchard was in the South, in Jamestown in 1615. Mm. Um you know, years before that um, Massachusetts, that Boston orchard that's touted as the first orchard in, in America. Um, but apples, Malus domestica, came to North America in a variety of, of ways. Scandinavian cod fishermen left apple seeds on islands in Maine um, in the 1500s. Hmm. Uh, the, the Spanish wow. who came to Florida, Spanish and Portuguese, certainly brought peaches and citrus. And it's likely they could have brought apples as well. And apples could have come down from uh, the Seneca in the indigenous tribes in New York, could have come down the trading route of the Appalachians into the southern Appalachians, even before the fur traders, the French and, and English fur traders, brought seeds into the deeper mountains of the south. Oh, wow. Okay, so it's not very clear where the apple came from and when it came. And, and maybe lots of stories are true, right? Like maybe, so maybe there's a mix of those heritages and, and, and where those apples came from. But knowing what you said before, if we have apples as a food source in a community, 
they were put there by people. Exactly. They were the objects of a desire, like you said. And they had a use. They had a specific use. Diane Flint is the author of Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, the surprising story of apples in the South. We'll be back with more from her in a minute, and then we turn to the grand world of mezcal. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking apples and agave today, the once and maybe future backbone of drinks and spirits in North America. And we're coming back into a conversation about the beauty of southern apples with orchardist, cider maker, and author Diane Flint. You know, I think there is this really interesting way in which your book functions, right? And you talk about how the history of apples in the South offer us a way of looking at the history of the South, like in a clearer way. What do you mean by that? So much of the history of apples is deeply mythologized. And as Mm -hmm. I began researching this book, I was fascinated by conflicting stories. And then as I dug deeper, I was intrigued by missing stories. And to me, that's, Mm. that's where the learning occurs in looking at our history today is kind of scratching back the surface stories. Um, I'm thinking about... You mean like the Johnny Appleseeds? The Johnny Appleseed, <laughs> yes. Oh, please, don't write about that every fall. Or or the John Adams drink yeah. a tankard of cider for breakfast. Those are so tired. And there's so many more interesting and complex stories and stories that are that still have question marks, which to me is intriguing. There's an apple um, that was grown commercially in North Carolina um, for a long time, an old, old Southern apple called the Tony apple in central North Carolina. And there are two stories um, about how the Tony apple got its name. One is the mythologized story of the Confederate soldier who was walking home after the war and picked up an apple on the side of the road and ate it and kept the seeds and took it to his home in Mount Pleasant, North Carolina, and it was planted and it grew well and spread. The other story is that an enslaved man named Tony transplanted a tree on the farm where he was enslaved, and the apple was christened the Tony apple. And we don't know which one of those stories are true, but they certainly represent Mm. two paths of the South's history that are worth examining. Mm. Yeah. Although, you know, botanically, (laughs) it seems like if you just picked up the seed from one, to your point before, they don't grow true to seed, and the other actually involved the skill and the intelligence uh, of a, of a, of a, you know, a, a craftsperson, an orchardist, who actually like transplanted and, and grafted the tree. So uh, I kind of feel like the science tells you what you need to know in that one. Yeah. Well, the, um, that brings up another point that fascinates me about apples and, and that really drew me deeper into the subject that I thought I knew something about. And when I began researching, I realized I knew very little about the history of apples in the South. And that's this concept of noticing. You know, farmers, good farmers... Mm. Gardeners are good noticers. You know, they, they notice when fruit is ripe. They notice when there's a problem. They notice when a tree grows a certain way. They notice when a tree is fruitful or not or when it thrives. 
And it's that skill, that intimate skill of noticing, that's where the choices were made about which apples to replicate. And the people who Mm -hmm. noticed are the people who actually did the work of gardening, who were mm. who were proximate, who were you know what we call dirt under the fingernails farmers, um, it was not necessarily the accounts of the um, the farm journals of the um, the aristocrats and the the plantation owners who wrote about fruit. We have that record, and it's valuable, and it's, and it's it's it records a history that's that's useful to look at, and records names and nurseries and valuable information and valuable history and culture. But the people who actually were farming were the ones noticing day to day what fruit grew well and what should be replicated. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much skill and craft. And, uh, you know, that that reminds me of a, a part in the book where you talk about how Thomas Jefferson was renowned for, A, his love of good cider and how excellent the cider that came from his estate, Monticello, was. But then you know, like, Thomas Jefferson wasn't out there pressing the apples, and he wasn't making the cider. It was his enslaved workers who were doing that, and they were the people who really had that skill. And I want to transition now to talking about cider, because a lot of your um, experience with apples comes from having opened the first modern cidery in the South. Congratulations. (laughs) Um, also that you have since retired from cider making, you've, you've had a whole career in cider making, but getting to that, you know, for a lot of people today, their only experience with hard cider is probably pretty mass produced, you know, the sort of afterthought, like one or two selections in the beer aisle in the store. Tell us what to you is really good cider like? Well, cider can be many things. Cider can quench your thirst on a hot day, and it also, you know, it's something you can pound back. I mean, that people talk about a session Mm -hmm. cider, that's a lower alcohol cider that you sit around and you drink three or four cans and you can still walk home. Uh, But to me, (laughs) (laughs) at its best, cider should be an interesting beverage. It should engage you, and it should Mm -hmm. have depth of flavor. And depth of flavor comes from tannin. And your grocery store apples, your galas, and your cosmic crisps are delicious to eat. But they don't have a lot of tannin. They're not tannin-forward fruit. So mm-hmm. good cider right, to yeah. me means at least some percentage of apples that are chosen for cider making that have a, a balance of lots of acidity, have tannin, and have complex flavor. You know, you can make cider from any apple. All you need is sugar um, and ferment that sugar into alcohol. But to get that engaging drink, that drink that that makes you want to linger over it rather than, you know, gulp it down, that makes you want to think about it perhaps a little bit, um, you need mm-hmm. you need complex fruit to get the complex flavor. I think of, yeah. um, you know, three legs to the stool of any beverage, tannin, acid, and sugar. And I would layer over that complex flavor and aroma. And to me, that's what mm. makes a good cider. And when you were making cider, would you gravitate towards blends or would you gravitate towards, you know, single varietal ciders, uh, for lack of a better term, if, if that's not actually the right term? 
It is the right term, and they're great single varietal ciders today, and I'm excited by what Southern cider makers are doing with single varietals, and especially excited that they're using regional apples, that you know people in Tennessee are making cider from limber twig, people in North Carolina are making cider from Matamesquite. In Georgia, they're using Yates, Virginia, Albemarle Pippin, and Hughes Crab. Um, I was a blender, and... Part of that was was my own aesthetic and my preference. I always felt like, you know, a blend might be 80 or 90 percent Hughes crab, but if I added just a little bit more of another variety, it seemed to round out the flavor for me. But part of it mm-hmm. is, you know, we started making cider in the early 2000s, and there weren't that many plantings of cider apples. I was using my own mm-hmm. fruit, and I was sourcing um, older varieties that were still widely grown in my area, North Carolina and Virginia, like wine sap and Albemarle Pippin that make a very good cider. So I didn't have that many choices. Yeah. Today, uh, cider makers are being inventive about working with orchardists to plant some of these old varieties. And I'm happy to see many southern cideries are planting southern cider apples because there's so many good southern cider apples and are making regional styles, uh, and including single varietals. I love hearing that because in the book, <laughs> you have this wonderful story of, uh, maybe it didn't feel wonderful at the time, of you meeting with an orchardist, y- y- trying to convince him to grow or, or sell you a particular type of apple you wanted to use in your cider. And you wrote, I had spent 10 years having <laughs> this conversation however many hundreds of times with how many hundreds of orchardists and farmers and not one <laughs> ever get to, to get them to grow me the, the apples I wanted. Yeah. But I love hearing of that revival of, of, of both the cider making and the apple growing. And you have this great story of the first day you opened your cider tasting room. So this is now you know, probably 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the response that it got. Tell us what happened that day. It was such a surprise, Francis. I was so primed. I was so proud of my my little cidery, and we had made you know a few hundred cases of our first pressing, and a lot of our own apples were in there, and um, some wine saps I'd purchased, and I, I was just bursting with with um, you know stories to tell about making cider and and the apples. I had a big display of apples. And I opened up the door, and I couldn't get a word in edgewise. Everybody who came in (laughs) wanted to tell me their apple story. And they all had Mm. these heartfelt, I mean, people would get tears in their eyes talking about the apple tree in my grandma's backyard, and she made this special pie, and I still make it on Thanksgiving. And, um, you know, the one you've heard so many times that even my husband tells about sitting on his grandfather's lap and having him peel a big red apple, probably a wine sap, in one long peel right there in front of that little boy's eyes and kind of the wonder of that. It, one, There was one story I have to relate to you that, that stuck with me. Uh, a, a middle-aged man came in and told me the story of, you know, apples in the South were, were sometimes stored in, in hay ricks. So you'd pile hay on the ground, um, pile a bunch of apples on top of them, and then cover them with a rick of hay or straw. Mm-hmm. And in a, in a mild southern winter, 
and with a long-lasting, really hard apple like a Rawls Janet or a Winter John or Albemarle Pippin, those apples would last, you know, up until, you know, January, February. He told would tell the story that as the youngest grandchild, he was the one who was put down on his hands and knees and burrowed into that pile, you know, throwing back handfuls <laughs> of straw as he burrowed into the middle. And he, he said that what stuck with him was the aroma as he pulled back mm. and got closer to the middle. The aroma of those ripe apples just overtook him. Oh, that must be incredible. And that takes me back to our early conversation and, and how apples are such a vehicle for flavor and aroma and how that is imprinted on people. Yeah. And it's wonderful that you know all these people came to you with these old memories and, again, to hear that step by step some of those apples are being revived as the last word in your title suggests. Diane, it has been really wonderful to talk with you. Thanks so much for coming. It's been a treat, Francis. Thank you. Diane Flint is the author of Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, the surprising story of apples in the South. And hey, as we head into apple season... Put them to work with our collection of apple recipes. You can find them at SplendidTable.org. Now, I have to let you know that I don't actually drink, but I have had the chance to taste some mezcals and quality tequilas with friends who are real aficionados. And my reaction has always pretty much been the same. It's like me going, whoa. Like sometimes they're like smoked flowers Sometimes they're super savory. The range and the power of the flavors are wild. But even with that, I had no idea how diverse the flavors of agave spirits are and the biodiversity that they embody until I started reading the new book, Agave Spirits, The Past, Present, and Future of Mezcals by ethnobotanist and longtime local food and seed-saving pioneer Gary Paul Nathan and restaurateur and spirits producer David Soto Piñera. Hey, David and Gary, it's so great to have you. Hello, how are you doing? Thank you for having us. Wonderful to be with you. So, congratulations on the book. It's such a deep work, but I have to say, the first thing I thought of when I was reading it was this totally off-the-wall quote, one of the funniest quotes I've ever <laughs> read. It's from someone named Mitch Radcliffe, and it goes, a computer lets you make more mistakes faster than any other invention in human history, with the possible exceptions of handguns and tequila. <laughs> so that is always hilarious to me. But, you know, I guess underneath that joke is the implication that tequila is there really for getting you really drunk, really cheap, right? But you write that agave spirits, like a tequila and mezcal and others, are really beautiful. So, David... You know, you've had a restaurant for decades called Tequilas. It's beautiful, has white tablecloths. Like, in your experience, are customers surprised when they come in and they expect it to be a place to go get bombed? Well, uh, yes, especially yeah. <laughs> back in the 1980s when, uh, you know, many people, most of the people, especially in the northeast of the United States, were not familiar with uh, a lot of the cultural aspects of uh uh, you know, culinary adventures or uh, spirits from Mexico. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it, it was a shock for a lot of people. So what has that been like to educate your clientele? You know, I, I saw that as an opportunity 
and you know, instead of uh, a lot of my colleagues uh, from the restaurant industry in Philadelphia, they were strongly suggesting that I sh- should change the name of the restaurant. That was mm. just not a right idea. So instead mm-hmm. of changing the name, I, I I saw as an opportunity to help people to change the misconceptions uh, around uh, agave spirits and also food from Mexico. You know, so that was a, a very tough decision, but uh, I guess 38 years later, it's still working. And we're very happy to, to keep that name and to continue to helping people to approach to agave spirits in the right way. Yeah. So obviously you've written this book, Agave Spirits, both of you. Tell us about some of these spirits that you're passionate about, the really good ones. What, what are they like? But, you know, the good stuff is like any beautiful spirit. But um, uh, I, I developed through the years a great respect from, you know, the people behind these spirits, the, uh, the ecosystems where the raw material comes from. That, that's something that really uh, is something that I dedicate a lot of my time and a lot of my research and understand the complexity, human complexity, and the symbiosis between plants and humans. Mm. And Gary, how did you get interested in the subject? Well, my grandfather and uncles were Lebanese bootleggers of Arak, uh, the uh, wonderful anisette drink from the Middle East and uh, uh, Greece and Turkey. Mm-hmm. And I grew up thinking that um, bootlegging was a wonderful adventure. And so when I began to go to Mexico when I was 18 or 19, I began to seek out bootleggers just to learn how they do things in relation to what my uncles and grandfather had done. Hmm, I think the wonderful thing is that agave spirits are not just one entity, but this whole rainbow of flavors and fragrances with each craftsman in each region taking his artisanal skills and making something bloom out of the desert Mm. in a beautiful and fragrant and flavorful way. Mm. So tell us about some of these spirits, the ones that you really love. Well, I love the ones that are place-based in different parts of Mexico that may only have a production area of 200 miles by 300 miles. And those include spirits such as Bacanora in the north of Mexico, uh, just across the line uh, from Arizona, where I live, to mm-hmm. Rayasia, a wonderful spirit, actually two kinds of Rayasia that occur in the state where David grew up, Jalisco. Mm-hmm. And they sort of get overshadowed by the blue desert of tequila in Jalisco. But uh, back in the hills, there are wonderful spirits still being made. And at one time, there were more than 50 different place-based names for spirits from Chihuahua all the way down to Chiapas, uh, where uh, Comiteco occurs. So mezcal is not just one thing. But when you say these are place-based, tell me more about what that means. I mean, I think we have a framework for thinking of that in terms of wine, right? In terms of grapes, the varietals matter, but, you know, people talk about this idea of terroir. Um, Tell us how that sort of works in these spirits and how different are they? 
Yeah, well, you know, in, in just in the case of tequila, this is how incredible these spirits uh, are. In the case of tequila, we are allowed to use only one varietal of agave, the agave tequilana Weber. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of mezcals, it's endless. It's hundreds of different varietals of agaves allowed to produce mezcals. So uh, when we talk about uh, the terroir or these spirits, it's endless. Um, in, in tequila, we have two main regions within the state of Jalisco, the highlands and the lowlands. And the flavor profiles from the highlands uh, in an area that is about 7,500 feet above sea level, we have a cool, dry weather that obviously has an impact on the uh, metabolism of the agaves. Typically, agaves from that area they have the tendency to give us more sugar content. Therefore, okay. flavors are affected by that uh, yield that we obtain from those agaves from that region. In the lowlands region, it's a volcano surrounded by this very prolific area that it has a lots of agave, tequilana, Weber, but it's all this minerality, all these dry, peppery profiles that distinct this area from the highlands region. I like to celebrate the diversity of the flavor profiles that we obtain on these spirits. And when you go to the territory of Mezcal, it's endless. It's so many microclimates. You have agaves to grow from 8,000 feet above sea level to sea level. Uh, just imagine, and hundreds of varietals. So. Wow. We'll be back with more from Gary Nabhan and David Soto Pineda, authors of Agave Spirits, the past, present, and future of mezcals. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking about the beauty of agave spirits with Gary Paul Nabham and David Suro Pinera, authors of Agave Spirits. Let's get back into it. As a newbie to this, what is the difference between tequila and mezcal? Is it purely like the area in which it's produced? Well, it, it is a denominations of origin. They are, you know, protecting specific areas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's interesting to bring to the attention of the listeners that these two denominations of origin are the largest denominations of origin in the world. There is no other denomination of origin in alcohol beverages to embrace and protect such a large extension of land. So okay. one of the main difference, yes, it is the geographical areas, but also its regulations of how to produce. And one that is very important is what I mentioned. In tequila, you are only allowed to use one varietal. In mezcal, everything basically grows under the protected area of the denomination of origin of mezcal. Okay. That's interesting. And so and the flavors will obviously be very different because you're using different material. But is there a difference in the processing? Is there a difference in the fermentation? Is there a difference in, in the making and distillation? I think one well, of the main difference is that tequila used to be just one of the expression of mezcal. But tequila, one well, of the main difference, I will say, is also process. Tequila, uh, since the early 1900s, it went more into efficiency, into large markets, and produced mass production. In mezcal, 
we we still have so many producers that are attached to the ancestral methods of production, the traditional mm. you know process that is being inherited from generations and generations. One part of this story that I love is that uh, agave spirits are probably more dependent on the diversity of microbes, beneficial microbes in their in the soil and in the fermentation vat than any other spirit in the world. There might be 30 yeast and 50 different bacteria in the fermentation vat of uh, mezcals in Durango, and they may share only five of those yeasts and 10 of those bacteria with the mezcals in Oaxaca. So rather than wow. thinking that the mezcal is just the values that emerge out of the plant during fermentation and distillation. Mm -hmm. It's really this community of organisms that uh, is different in each particular place in Mexico. And each of those uh, yeasts pulls out a different flavor uh, in the fermentation process and brings it to our lips. So it's this <laughs> wonderful that. symbiosis that we're celebrating. In most other spirits, vodka or gin or whiskey, you might be only using one or two yeasts. In mezcals, you might be involving 30 in a community that is uh, having its own celebration uh, in the fermentation vat. <laughs> Yeah, the, the microbes are really partying in there. But tell me this. So how would you describe when you're talking about the flavor and the taste? You know, grab from the shelf of your mind two of your favorite mezcals that are both, you know, made with these um, original methods, but have super different flavors to you. How different are they? Describe them what, to us. One uh, contrast that I love is that uh, another beverage in Mexico, a probiotic fermented beverage, pulque, is used with uh, agave salmiana, a giant plant, uh, twice as big as any of us in, in height and uh, hundreds of pounds heavier than each of us. Mm -hmm. And there's a distinctive flavor principle in those that one particular yeast pulls out that you can taste in the fermented beverage, but even when you distill it, that's a characteristic flavor. So there's carryover from the fermented beverages that are still sold throughout Mexico to the distilled ones and their flavor profile. And it, it means that each of the 50-some agaves has distinctive flavor principles in it, and then they're enhanced by the yeasts and the soils and and the artisanry of the producers. And so that's in huge contrast to the Bacanora that are in the desert just south of uh, where I live on the Arizona-Sonora border. There's fewer yeasts and bacteria, but there's this very sharp, bright, smoky flavor in the Bacanoras that hit your tongue and your nose as soon as you bring the kikara or shot glass up to your lips. So mm. huge contrasts just within a matter of a few miles sometimes yeah. with different uh, species. Yeah, that's amazing. That smokiness sometimes in mezcal is so beautiful and intense, smokier than you know the smokiest scotch. Um, and then there are ones that you described to me previously as being like almost like 
kimchi-like or cheese-like. And it's just that, that, that diversity of flavor is wild. How do you serve these spirits when you have them? Do you mix them? Do you, you know, sip them straight? Do you put them on ice? Do you put water in it? How do you like to serve them? That's another part of the generosity, uh, organoleptically speaking, of these spirits. They are they are very approachable if you just serve them uh, straight, neat. Uh, but also due to the robust profiles, the complexity that they have, they are also an excellent tool for a good bartender to develop incredible cocktails. And also they are very good to uh, blend with other spirits. Uh, and I see more and more across the United States in Europe, bartenders incorporate um, agave spirits into their cocktail programs. Uh, I don't think I've been in the last uh, 10 years in a, in a good bar that it doesn't have at least couple cocktails with agave spirits. Yeah. Typically, when we're talking about, again, these traditional methods or these traditional spirits, the agave is grown quite differently how we would imagine most farms, right? You know, if you ask me, picture a farm in your mind. There are basically two images. One is like maybe a small family farm, garden plots, lots of different vegetables. And the other is like corn rows as far as the eye can see, you know, like a big, huge um, kind of industrial type of farm. But these are grown with a different system, right, called agroforestry. Tell us about agroforestry and how it works, Gary. Yes, think of uh, agroforestry as a kind of wonderful stew out on the landscape uh, rather than in a bowl (laughs) of all different kinds of uh, vegetables and root crops. Uh, In an agroforestry system, uh, like the milpa ones in Mexico, you have rows of corn and beans and squashes and vegetables in between Uh, rows of agaves and prickly pears and trees. And the trees are there not only for uh, their fruits or nuts, but also for the firewood that's needed in the distillery that gives the smoky flavor to some of those mezcals. So you're having multiple stories, uh, a high tree canopy with some agaves on the edge of it with a terrace slope may have 20 or 30 terraces from the top of a hill down to the base and different kinds of chilies and and, uh, oreganos and uh, uh, spice crops grow under those trees and on the skirts of the agaves. And, And it's really like a potpourri of useful plants, each which benefits the other by providing it with nitrogen or with organic matter mm-hmm, or with mm-hmm. other uh, ways of obtaining moisture from the soil. They, their roots are interconnected. And the farmers that manage those have to be very skilled in understanding the, the needs and the values, the harvest time of all those different crops uh, that go into it. And many of those spices are now used in curados or infusions mm-hmm. uh, that um, heighten and enrich the flavors of many mezcals. Yeah, I mean, that's that's such an interesting system. And it seems so holistic, right? It's not just um, 
hey, let's, we have this important cash crop, let's just grow it over and over and over again. I think keeping that biodiversity in that area, in the soil, in the land, um, it's got to just be healthier for everything. My only experience with anything even approaching that is um, I got to spend some time on a cacao farm and I was amazed. I'd never seen people growing cacao, you know, which are the pods that we make chocolate out of. And the farmers were, you know, it wasn't rows and rows of cacao trees. It was like going into a forest and saying, you know, this is a tree and that tree. And they knew all of the trees. They knew the individual plants. Um, and this is where we grow the chilies for our family. And this is, you know, it was just, it was almost just taking a walk with them. But to them, it was a farm. It's just so unlike um, the kind of like farm that appears in my mind. So David, once the, you know, the agaves are harvested from this beautiful, rich soil, this rich land, how is it processed? Well, uh, to obtain that raw material to produce these amazing spirits, it takes years and a lot of wisdom mm. from, from farmers. Uh, in the case of tequila, this is, as I mentioned before, to have just one varietal of agave, uh, create these monocultives that uh, it is in, in today's tequila industry is a real challenge. And also the plants, they're not being reproduced in, in the proper way for many generations. So, you know, to obtain this raw material, it takes a lot of care from farmers and from mm -hmm. responsible producers. And I would say that you, you have to be as respectful as you can be as a producer of tequila or mezcal to take those years of lots of love and labor from Mother Nature mm -hmm. into a process to respect every step of the process. And, you know, the process is very straightforward. You're going to hydrolyze the plants. You're going to cook them to convert the starches of the agave into fermentable sugars. Then you're going to extract the sugars. You're going to ferment the sugars, create alcohol, and then distill these sugars from the agave. And, and it's multiple uh, process to do that. There is an old traditional method of do every step of this conversion from starches into liquid art. Mm. And uh, it depends how much the producers know about this uh, complex raw material. But uh, it's about uh, 50, 60 different variables that you can obtain from the process of making one of these incredible spirits. And these agaves, they take a you know, minimum of four years to reach maturity and up to 35 years to reach maturity. So wow. it's just... All these, just imagine in grapes, we have uh, vintages that, uh, you know, put attention on the elements of the summer, the uh, spring of particular year. Just imagine what can happen in a raw material that is exposed to up to 35 summers, 35 winters. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's just fascinating. And that's why I think the, the, the producers... Uh, and consumers, this is very important to to evaluate and to and to respect all what is there for us to to taste and to enjoy from these noble spirits. Yeah, I love that. Let me ask you one question because one of the things that I think is so interesting about um, mezcals that I have tasted in the past is this distinctive smokiness. How does that smokiness get in there? 
Well, you know, this is another difference between tequila and mezcal, and that's because that smokiness, that pitiness came from a part of the process, uh, at the very start of the process to make the conversion from starches into fermentable sugars, we have to cook, we have to hydrolyze the plants. So the traditional ancestral methods of making that conversion is some underground peats that use uh, you know, wood and lava rock and the, um, the agaves, they're going to be slowly cooked underground. And that process oh, wow. is going to generate... Like pit that, roasted. Yeah, they roasted. And the, oh, cool. The combination of the uh, wood fire and the lava rocks and being covered for up to five days is going to uh, get that pitiness, that smokiness. Most of the tequilas, um, I would say 99% of the tequilas nowadays, they are steam-cooked agaves. So mm. you don't have that burning, that wood element, that pitiness. Uh, but also the intensity on the uh, pitiness and the smokiness is going to be affected by the process, how you're going to ferment and how you're going to distill. Uh, some of the mezcales they have the tendency to be more smoky. Our mezcales they are distilled in copper. Uh, it's, it's something very interesting. You know, copper is uh, respects all these elements of, or, of of aromas and flavors that go through the distillation in copper. But yeah. when you have mezcaleros that uh, use clay distillation or wood distillation, they have the tendency to be less smoky, less pitiness on those mezcales. So, you know, the, the intensity, the levels of the smokiness also depends on the hand of the maker and the traditional process behind each mezcal. Yeah, it's a lot to think about in a glass. Thank you so much for this, David and Gary. This is great. Thank you. Thank you. Gary Paul Mapan and David Ciro Pinera are the authors of Agave Spirits, the past, present, and future of mezcals. And that is our show for the week. Hope you enjoyed it. Talk to you next week. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Shaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto Casper. It's made every week for you by Jennifer Lukey, who's our technical producer, Erica Romero, who's our producer, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your downloads, and take some time to leave us a review. I'd love to hear what you think. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios.